Before we go to Daniel, uh, turn with me to the book of Titus in the New Testament. Titus. And I'll tell you exactly what we're going to look at before we start our study in in Daniel. Uh, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 15. I want to begin here because I want us to to remember, to realize that when we deal with issues concerning the last days, when we're dealing with issues concerning prophecy, especially prophecy that is coming to pass uh, quickly around us, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today, we have to remember what we're called to do every day as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. And notice what what Paul says to Titus. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Looking for... Now, you you notice the the order here. We are to live a certain way, and then we are to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So, I, I just want to lay that foundation. I know it's, it's something we should already know. But when we get back into Daniel, as I'd like for you to turn to Daniel 11 here, that, that you realize the importance of our living according to the will of God and the Word of God because Jesus is coming soon. So, just a, just a reminder. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, is our text. And we're going to kind of use this time as a little bit of a review from last time when I said that we wanted to focus our attention on the, the, the modern Persia, which is Iran, as we press on into chapter 11, because Iran will be very critical in our study this evening. And then just touch on, on verses 1 through 4 as, a, as an introduction to all of the chapter of uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, I should say. So now this is considered as the angel that has been ministering or bringing a message to, uh, to Daniel, saying, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I, stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And we'll talk about that when, when the time uh, comes. And now will I show thee the truth. And again, the angel speaking to Daniel. Now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be rich, uh, far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up 
all against the realm of Greece or Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others besides those, or beside those. Now that doesn't make sense until we get through it a little bit here in just a moment. So let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon our study this evening here in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. Father, how we know the critical nature of this passage and the passage to come in both this chapter and the next as it applies to the nation of Israel, as it applies to the events of the last days, and to some extent as it applies to us, the church. So we ask for this wisdom. We ask for this outpouring of your Holy Spirit for that wisdom. Lord, to be in us, in our thinking, in our mind, in our hearts, and ready, Lord, to receive everything you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In preparation for our study of the last two chapters of the book of Daniel, and based on what we've studied so far, we need to ask this question. What is the angel going to tell Daniel in chapters 11 and 12? What is this angel going to tell Daniel in these last two chapters? Well, simply, the angel will tell Daniel the things that will come to pass during the Persian and Grecian empires from Cyrus to Antiochus, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, up through. Now, not just stopping there, but actually up through the Great Tribulation, the seven years, not just the three and a half, but actually the tribulation period of seven years, all the way to the second coming of Christ. All of this, of course, is, is recorded in, in God's scripture of truth, which is, of course, the Bible, the holy scriptures. And so all that this messenger is going to tell Daniel is going to come to pass. Everything he tells Daniel. And it will not contradict what the Lord has already said. It is not going to contradict anything that has already been given by the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New. <clears throat> we must always understand that God will never contradict Himself. That any new revelation that is contradicting the Scriptures is not from God, but it is a doctrine of demons. Now let's face it. If it's not of God, then it is of the enemy. And Jesus made this very clear in his, in his ministry to us as he gave forth the word, but especially in, in, in places like Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, uh, Luke 21, the accounts of the of the uh, 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 
the sermon that he gave, uh, the Olivet Discourse on the, sur- the, uh, on the uh, Mount of Olives, before the, uh, the week of Passover and before the cross, he said, do not be deceived. And there will be many things said to deceive you, many things done to deceive you. We are living today in a time of great deception. And, and that deception, I mean, that, that deception is not only in the church. That deception is in government. It is in every facet of, of, of our lives today. And the f- weird thing is, of course, that maybe 30, 40 years ago when we were studying Bible prophecy and we kind of didn't have all the names yet of all the players, we're pretty much close to having all the names of all the players now. But in those days, we did not see this tremendous... Uh, uh, escalation of communication that we have today. Every day we can look when we get up in the morning and look at the news or look, you know, look at some news source that you, whatever you use. I think we have to be very careful of those things too. But every day we're going to be faced with some kind of question as to how close the coming of Jesus Christ is. Because of what we see. And because of what we hear. I take for example the very fact that for how many years now, we in the United States of America have, have said we will never negotiate with terrorists. But I heard this morning on the news that we're going to start negotiating with terrorists. Which puts our military in jeopardy. Which puts our... Which put our Soldiers that are in, in, in areas of, of great uh, military struggle in, 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 in harm's way, even more. For the, for, you know, if, if we're going to negotiate with terrorists about ransoms for, for uh, captured Americans, then they'll just capture more Americans, if you, if you follow, if you follow the, uh, the logic here. And that's just one example. And we find ourselves today as a nation negotiating with the biggest terrorist organization that there is, and that is the nation of Iran, which I'll talk about here in just a little bit. So if it wasn't so crazy, it's really tragic. But again, this is just one of those things, just one area of so many other weird things that are happening. Lawlessness, Jesus said, would abound, and the love of many would draw or would grow cold. The love of many would wax cold. Did you look into the eyes of that young man who killed those people last Wednesday? in a church service, just like we're having a church service tonight? Cold. Empty. Heartless. If not demonically oppressed. It was even worse.
God will not contradict himself. The word of God is is proven. Time and time again and every day, as we look to the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice what David says about the word of God and how the Lord considers this issue. In Psalm 138, verse 2, David writes, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Do you notice what he said at the end? For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now if you have any modern translation, it will read quite differently, but literally this is what it says. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. And this is the reason why we don't want to water down God's word or try to explain it away. Because God holds it in such high esteem. God holds His own Word in such high esteem that we should never try to water it down or try to explain it away. The Word of God has been given to us by inspiration of God, which means it has been given by God as if He has breathed it to us. The inspiration of God is is God-breathed, actually. Every word is important and has significance. Every word of the Scriptures. Now, as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, and again, for example, let's, let's look at this, this person that we, that we met, actually a, 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 an angelic being named Michael. We would say, well, this is just another angel. But he's not just another angel. First of all, what we read there toward the end, if you'll notice the last three words of of chapter 10, speaks of Michael, your prince. And I've already alluded to the fact that Michael is is actually the the, uh, angel that protects the nation of Israel. That is his main responsibility. We talked a little bit about it. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it right now. So this title, Michael, your prince, indicates to us that this angel, which actually is an archangel, as we'll see in just a moment, that this archangel Michael has a very special relationship with the nation of Israel. He is, from all indications, Israel's warrior. If we connect this to what Gabriel, uh, Gabriel's role is, at least this is who we believe is the one that is speaking to uh, to uh, to Daniel and having to battle as it were the prince of Persia which is the angelic being or the demonic being I should say over the nation of Persia then we have to consider really the, the, the strong role that Michael plays in our understanding these last couple of chapters as well Consider Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, because we're going to get there eventually. But Daniel 12, verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Stop there and think the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of Israel's trouble. So there is a reference there. To what the prophets have, have, have already 
proclaimed. There is going to be a time of trouble. Michael is still the prince that uh, stands with the children of, of Israel. But the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. So we're, we're seeing now terminologies here that have to do with end time prophetic issues. Not so much the every time that Israel fails the Lord and has to go into captivity, eventually the Lord does deliver them and gets them back in the land. No, this, is, this has a final ring to it. This has a ring to it that is telling us we're not dealing with just another time, but the latter times. And those are words that Daniel has used here. Or that is used, I should say, in the book of Daniel. The latter times. Such as never has there been. So there's a time of trouble. We can refer to that time of trouble as Jacob's trouble. What other time can we call it? The time of great tribulation. And it all refers to the same time. We also call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not one day, it is a seven year period of time. And it coincides with the prophecy that we already studied in this book, in Daniel chapter 9, verse, verses 24 through 27. So, it is no surprise then, that the chief angel, or the ruling messenger, because that's literally... Uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, the title given to Michael, it's no surprise that the chief angel or ruling messenger or archangel, which is actually uh, given to us in the Greek, and I'll show you that in, in just a, mo- a moment, but this angel is tasked <coughs> with the protection and care over God's people Israel and also has a part and responsibility in the future of the church. Now, it's not to bring the church into Daniel because I told you a while back that we're not dealing with the church in the book of Daniel. But nonetheless, Michael is connected to it. And I'll show you that again in just a moment. Even though it's not stated specifically. But I want you to consider, if you will, the only two mentions of an archangel. The only two mentions of an archangel in the scriptures. And both of them are found in the... the, uh, in the New Testament, in the Greek text, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, how many of you know what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us about? It tells us about the rapture of the church. And here it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Interesting. The voice of the archangel. <laughs> Not a archangel or an archangel, but the archangel. And with the trump of God. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited uh, because when I hear the trump of God, well, I hope we all hear the trump of God soon. But when I see it in the scriptures, I'm, I'm really excited that after the book of Daniel, we're going to go into a, into a study of, of the... Uh, uh, before we go on to the next book, which we're going to study in the prophets on Wednesday night, but I'm going to go through a study of the feasts of Israel and their connection to end-time prophecy 
especially the day of trumpets. So I am so thankful. I'm a trumpet player. But I don't think I'll be the one blowing the trumpet when it, when it comes. But anyway, it's, it's, it's going to be exciting. But anyway, uh, the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Go to Jude, which is the little one-chapter book right before the book of Revelation. So it's the next to the last book of the Bible. And for those who like big words, it's the penultimate chapter of the Bible, which is, or the book of the Bible, which is the next to the last. It's a fancy word for next to the last book of the Bible. The book of Jude. Because it talks there about this angel named Michael. It says... Actually, by name, it says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. A very interesting verse. We could spend a good amount of time studying and breaking it down to understand the wording and all. But nonetheless, here's Michael the archangel, a chief, chief messenger of God, a chief angel of God, an archangel of God, a ruling angel, as it were, who is contending over the body of Moses with the devil. But he's not going to bring an, an accusation. Even angels have boundaries, according to the Lord. And instead he says, the Lord rebuked thee. But it's Michael. This is the same angel that we're talking about here in the book of Daniel. Another thing to take note here is that nowhere in Scripture is the plural used. We never see archangels. We only see the word used in a plural, I'm sorry, in a singular sense. Not a plural sense. Only one archangel. Now, there are mention, or there is a mention of chief princes in in chapter 10, uh, verse 13 of, of Daniel where it says there, uh, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Uh, So that may indicate others in this classification, but nothing is said of them in the scriptures except here. So it makes me believe that there is uh, other types of, of angels or princes, but there's this one archangel, the archangel. And again... When do we see Michael really mentioned, but about the latter times? Even in the, in, in the present time of Daniel, Michael was active, but will be active primarily in the, in the last days. Michael's name means, who is like God? Who is like God? And I, and I like that of the chief angel here, because... What that says is, you know, he's battling an angel, isn't he? Da- Daniel, in essence, stands against Satan, who's a fallen angel. And may have at one time been as, as, as high up as, as Michael was in the angelic beings uh, group. <laughs> But, uh, but you'll notice, again, if you go back to Jude, you see that he doesn't rail against him. His, his job is to contend. Contend for Moses. Contend for Israel. Contend for the people of God. 
And, uh, and so, who is like God? Well, you know what he says with his name? Hey, Satan, you're not like God. But Satan said, when, when, when named Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14, he wanted to be like the Most High, actually want to be above the Most High. So I think Michael's name is so appropriate. Who's like God? You certainly aren't. And so I, th- I think that's a great name for him. The name is also found one last time in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, verse 7. So again, we see his activity in the last days. There, in, uh, there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought uh, and his angels. Now, who's the dragon? Satan. So you see how that, uh, how that all plays out here. Moving on now, we need to have a quick review, though, of some previous verses at the end of chapter 10. Just ties this into what, we, what we're doing so far with, uh, with uh, Michael and Gabriel, as well as Persia and Greece. Uh, go back just two verses to verse 20 of chapter 10. Then said he, knowest thou why I come unto thee? Do you know, do you know why I come to you? The angel said to, to Daniel, and now... Will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. So the angels, uh, obviously, and, and this angel Gabriel here, uh, who we've been identifying as Gabriel, but this angel that's been speaking to Daniel is continually fighting still with the prince of Persia. So there, there are battles going on at all times in, the, in, in that uh, realm that we cannot see, in that invisible realm. And, and, uh, but what this is telling us here, let's go on to verse 21. But I will show thee that which is noted in the Scripture of truth, and there is none that holds uh, with me in these things. In other words, there's nobody who's, who's with me as far as what I'm doing, uh, but Michael, your prince. So that's an interesting statement that uh, these two... Angels are the ones that are really contending strongly uh, for the sake of Israel. But the timeline of God's plan for Israel is made clear in chapter 11. So we're coming to the timeline now of these uh, these last uh, days and the latter days. But these two preceding verses set up the events of the next chapter. So verses 2 through 35 of chapter 11. Don't count verse 1 because verse 1 actually ties into into the last part of verse of chapter 10. So verses 2 through 35 of chapter 11 has the angel telling Daniel about God's plan for Israel under Persia and Greece. Under Persia and Greece. That's, that's going to be our, our, our main focus uh, next week. And then he tells him of God's plan in verses 36 through 45. Already you know it's a long chapter if you haven't looked at it. But verses 36 through 45, he tells him of God's plan for Israel later in the tribulation. So there is what is going to be somewhat present for Israel, and then he will go on and carry that on to say, what, what you've seen happen before is going to happen again. All right? So the players are very important here. The players on the scorecard, you know, Persia and Greece. The, the, have we heard about them before? 
Yeah, we heard about them all the way back to the statue in chapter 2. And the beast in chapter 4. So they are very, very prominent here. And then lastly, his plan for Israel in the millennium is Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So there's the timeline. Okay, so there is movement toward the last days. So we'll see that this is all prophetic. But before we move on into the specifics of Daniel 11 and 12, I want to focus attention on the nature and character of modern Persia. Modern Persia. We know it as Iran. I-R-A-N. Now think about those letters for just a moment. Iran, Iran, some people pronounce it that way. I guess you pronounce it Iran in the south. Uh, other places it's Iran or Iran. Okay, but it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very significant word for us to understand. And I'm going to give you that significance here in just a moment. Because it, it, it plays a tremendous role in the last day's prophetic landscape. Now, Iranians or Iranians, though predominantly Muslim, are not Arabs. Well, let's, let's clear that air. Iranians are not Arabs. They are Persians. That is what they've always been. They're Persian. The actual name of Iran was always Persia. Now I'm looking around, I don't think any of us here lived before 1930. Well, I didn't, so don't look at me. (laughs) But the name was changed to Iran in the 1930s. Specifically, it was in 1935 that this person, Reza Shah Pahlavi, who was the father of later Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, who was the the Shah of Iran during the time of Jimmy Carter's administration and and when the uh, uh, the U.S. embassy back in the, in the late 70s was overrun by the radicals who were being led by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, well, the Shah was was run out of of, of the country. Uh, but this was his father. So it just kind of ties in with, with that part of history. But in 1935, this man, Reza Shah Pavlavi, who was the Shah of Persia at that time, he actually asked all foreign delegates to use the term Iran in all foreign correspondence. Well, the reason was this. Iran literally means the land of the Aryans. I mean, have you heard of the, of the name Aryan? A-R-Y-A-N-S. That's where that word comes from. Aryans. Yes, you can start drawing some pictures in your mind about what happens after all of this. Because now, in the 30s, Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. And he sent envoys to Persia as he was looking for allies 
in the Middle East to outflank the British and the French so that he could make a way to unite with the Japanese who were by that time threatening India. Now, if you know the history of all of this, this uh, Axis uh, group, you know, Japan and Germany and, and Italy, uh, of course, Japan was so far from, from Germany. And, and because the nations began to put up blockades and, and sanctions and, and one thing or another, uh, you know, to keep the Germans and the Japanese as separated as possible, uh, they were looking for a way through the Middle East to, uh, to reach J uh, Japan with, because they had an agreement for weapons and all, and uh, that's a, it's a long story. Anyway, that's part of the history of, of uh, the, the, the beginnings of World War II. But Hitler, aside from all of that, Hitler also believed that the Germans were descendants of a race of people known as the Aryans. Now, I'm not going to talk about this very specifically, so you can, look, you can always look this up yourself. But that, that is why Aryans, the, the name Aryan has become synonymous today with, with white supremacy. And, and any kind of, of group that would link itself to what is called a master race. And, and Hitler was obsessed with this. He was so obsessed that, that uh, he had uh, scientists and, and uh, biologists and all, all kinds of science, uh, geo, uh, geo, geographical and, and, and just all kinds of people working to find the source of the connection between the German people and this Aryan race of people. So when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933, one of his missions was to find the forefathers of the Aryan race. And historically, and he was right, historically it would have been in Central Asia. Central Asia. And he wanted to find this race that guarded the secrets, what they believed to be the secrets of a master race. Now, they went to places like Tibet, and I could have showed you a lot of pictures about this, where they're, they're actually uh, uh, taking Tibetan people and, and measuring their skulls. And as a matter of fact, there's a, a German measuring the skull of, of, uh, of, of a Tibetan person. And uh, as I look, they, they look very similar, don't they? Yeah, they kind of uh, were a little disillusioned after this kind of time that they spent. And again, you have to kind of read up on the history of it all and, and whatnot. But Aryans, getting back to Aryans, are in fact Indo-European. Indo-European. They are not a Semitic people like Jews and Arabs who came from Shem, the son of Noah. Shem, that's where Semitic comes from, is from the name Shem. So they would be the same anthropological origin, and I speak of the Aryans, they would be of the same anthropological origin as Germans and Austrians. Europeans who settled in the Near East from northern India to the Fertile Crescent. 
This is why they went to Tibet. This is why they went into all of those lands. And, uh, and, and, and one, another reason why they wanted to take more land out of Russia. The very same reason. And so the Fertile Crescent, by the way, is, is the area around the Tigris and Euphrates River, which is today Iraq and uh, in that area there. Now, it's interesting, if we, if we speak of Indo-Europeans, you have to focus on the Indo part. Well, it is interesting that Hinduism, which of course we consider to be the, the religion of, of, of uh, most uh, of India and, uh, uh, and those countries in that particular area of, of, uh, of Asia, it's interesting that Hinduism, which is a very, by the way, a very racist religion because of its caste system. If you know anything about the, the Indian people, they have a caste system. And it is, the way it's set up is you, they're considered that, they consider that light-skinned Aryans are the highest class in India. So we wouldn't know that, but that's the way it is. The lighter color skin, they call them, they're called Aryans. And the darker the skin, and they're just cast, you know, step down. The darker the skin, the lower the caste. We wonder about white supremacy, you see. But this is a religion of the people of India. By the way, Islam is a similar type of racist religion, even though they won't admit it. But they have a somewhat of a caste system as well. We'll maybe deal with it some other time. Hitler's anthropological research caused him to believe that the Persians, the Persians were part of the master race based upon their history of subjugating nations. So Hitler was not only into the science of all of this, it was also into the history of it all. And interestingly, the religion of the Persians was not initially Islam. It was Zoroastrianism following the prophet Zoroaster, or as known in Germany and most Western nations, Zarathustra. Zarathustra. And it was from this prophet that the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche formed many of his beliefs, including, and listen to this, including the will of God, the will of power, master-slave mentality, the death of God. Those of you who might remember back in the 60s when, when it, you know, people were saying God is dead, well, they got all of this from studying Nietzsche. And then there is Ubermensch, the Superman. The Superman. As a matter of fact, Superman, I hate to burst your bubble if you're into comics and all of that, but Superman was based on that particular philosophy of, of Nietzsche, of a super race from somewhere else. And this also then brings into effect aliens and all kinds of other stuff. All right, I'm trying to get through this quickly as we get back to the Word. There's one other thing, eternal recurrence. Not resurrection closer to uh, reincarnation type. That was a part of this, this uh, uh, religion that 
that Nietzsche uh, formed his philosophies and affected, by the way, he came before Hitler, so Hitler was affected by Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's philosophies about the master race and about the superman and all of these things. Um, those of you who uh, remember uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know, the music at the very beginning, boom, 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 you know, that uh, that was written by Richard Strauss, who was at the time, you know, he was he was a part of the Nazi Party, and uh, uh, but he had fallen really into the trap of Nietzsche as well. So that music was based on that. All right, all these ideas formed the ne- the Nazi religious platform. So is it any wonder then that the Iranians now getting back to them because that's what we've been talking about? The Iranians now. They're led religiously and politically today, not by Zoroaster or Zarathustra or that religion. Now they're led by Islamic Ayatollahs. Islamic Ayatollahs. Well, that's Nietzsche, by the way, with a big mustache. And, and, and you know, the Ayatollahs get, gather all these people. That's the Iranian flag. They gather all these people and, and they begin to espouse these kinds of things. They're Holocaust deniers. They deny the Holocaust. They're very strong in their belief in that, even though they, they have nothing to stand on. Uh, and they're the greatest terroristic uh, uh, force against Israel and the United States of America. This is where we got that, that this idea that, you know, uh, you, the U.S. is the great Satan and Israel is the, the little Satan, you know. All that came from the Ayatollahs. And even the Times of Israel headlined this. Khomeini, this is not Khomeini from the 70s, this is Khomeini today. The Ayatollah Khomeini calls death to America. He's got these rallies like this, calling death to America as Kerry, uh, our Secretary of of, uh, State, hails progress on, on nuke deal. That's the headline. Khomeini calls death to America as Kerry hails progress on nuke deal. With the Iranians. So they want to kill us and we're, we're saying, yeah, go ahead. Nice to meet you. Sidebar. Just announced today, as I said earlier, the U.S. will now negotiate with terrorists. Crazy, isn't it? So getting back now to the last part of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. Oh, one other thing before we do. Hitler, we know his hatred for the Jewish people. Hitler made friends with the Mufti, the uh, Islamic leader of Jerusalem back in the 30s. Um, his name is Haj Amin al-Husseini. Anyway, he uh, made friends with them. Because he wanted every he wanted every avenue that he could find to destroy the Jews. He was demon possessed. I, I I am convinced that Hitler was demon possessed. So uh, we could speak about that at another time. So anyway, getting back to Daniel. Daniel was receiving answer to his prayer, but the battles in the spiritual realm were far from over. 
The warfare would continue beginning with Persia, followed by Greece. Each of these empires having power over God's people. So we read in verses 1 and 2 of our text, it says, Also in the first year of, of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. So uh, this was one of God's agents, as it were, an a- angel, but an agent of the Lord too. You know, if God is in control of all things, and he's in control of everything, and, 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 and sometimes we can't understand it in our finite minds, but God knows what he's doing. And then it says, And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the four shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia or Greece. Now the angel Gabriel lets Daniel know that the leadership that was currently in control of the Persian Empire would be followed by four kings. The first of the kings would be Cambyses, the son of Cyrus. Now I'm just going to give you these names very quickly. Cambyses, son of Cyrus, who came to the throne in 530 B.C. The second king was known as Pseudo-Smerdis, who reigned from about... uh, He only reigned for about a year, from 522 to 521. The third king was Darius I, Histapes, who ruled Persia from 521 to 486. So he ruled the longest. Uh, And then he was succeeded by Xerxes... I think most of us have heard the name Xerxes or Artaxerxes, right? But this was Xerxes, known in the book of Esther as Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is Xerxes in history, who ruled from 485 to 465. Xerxes was the most prominent, the most powerful, and the most prosperous and influential of the four kings. And of course, he's mentioned in the text. And it was during his reign that he fought wars against the up-and-coming Greeks. Now, there are some facts that we need to come to grips with. First of all, Xerxes was not the last king of Persia, even though it may seem to be implied here. What he did do was stir up Asia against the growing realm of Greece, and with an army of about two and a half million soldiers, Xerxes crossed what is called the Hellespont, or the Dardanelles, which, uh, which is a narrow strait in north, northwestern Turkey connecting the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Marmara. But he, he crossed this place and invaded Greece. Now, the very size of his army actually would defeat his own purpose. I think some of us may, may have seen the, or read of the story of the 300, you know, from the... the uh, the accounts of, uh, you know, the, the Trojans and, and all. Uh, but anyway, the more you had, sometimes trying to cross through a very narrow area was, was, a little, was a little more defeating than helpful. Anyway, that's for another time. Uh, his soldiers were driven back into Asia. So the Greeks really never forgave the Persians for this invasion and they would desire vengeance until the days of Alexander the Great, who is referred to in the next verse of our text. Verse 3 is about Alexander. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now remember this is prophecy. This is not uh, what some modern critics of, of, the, of the scriptures say was actually someone who, who had already experienced the history of it and decided to write it as Daniel and then it was added to the scriptures. Wrong. You know, this, was, this was all written by Daniel 
hundreds of years before it took place. But Alexander rose to power and conquered the Western world from Greece to India in just uh, some 11 to 12 years. And then fell upon his bed and he wept for there were no more kingdoms to conquer. You've probably heard that about Alexander. And thus when he had risen to the zenith of his power at the age of 32, he died of pneumonia complicated by alcoholism and malaria. And he died in the city of Babylon in 323 B.C. After his death, his kingdom would be divided up in four directions. The four winds of heaven. Have we seen that? Yeah, the next... The next verse. We'll see it in just a moment. But you'll also see in that verse that none of his kingdom would be given to his family. And I'll show you that in a moment. Look at verse 4. When he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. So all four directions. And then and not to his posterity. That's his family. It would not go to any of his family, not to his posterity nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. So, the empire of Alexander was seized by four of his generals, and the strength and power that Alexander brought to this nation was never seen again, for this kingdom was, in fact, divided. And so, too, was its strength and power. I know I've given these names in the earlier chapters of Daniel, but, but these are the kings. I'll go very quickly again. We'll start here next time with these, uh, with these kings because they play a prominent role in the, the next part of, of, the, of the study of Daniel chapter 11. Uh, Seleucus was the first king. He was the king of the north. The king of the north was over Syria and Mesopotamia. And again, we know where Syria is, but now next to Syria is, is the Mesopotamian area, the Fertile Crescent, where Iraq is. And that's where Abraham came from, by the way. And then uh, Ptolemy was the king of the south, and the south, of course, was Egypt. And then Lysimachus was king of the east, and and he covered uh, this area of Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. That would be the area of Turkey. Uh, And then there was Cassander, who was the king of the west. But when we say west, we only go as far west as Macedonia and what is commonly known as Greek today. So we'll talk about those later because of time. We'll we'll go ahead and pick up here the next time. But before we dismiss, I want you all to turn, if you will, with me to Psalm 40. Let's turn to Psalm 40. For it is written of the eternal Son of God in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written, or is within, I should say, my heart. And just as every step of Jesus Christ's journey from the throne of the universe down to the cross of Calvary, back to his heavenly throne, even to the ages of ages, was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, so the Lord has foreseen all that is to transpire on the earth in the affairs of men. And so let the enemy of our souls, Satan, and evil men everywhere rage as they will. 
we are encouraged by this word. And the word is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. And I, I want to always leave you with an encouragement from the word. And the word is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, where Paul says of Jesus in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Well, think about how great that is for us who believe. We have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And what a joy it is to have his wisdom as well and to be able to discern how we are to live our lives in these last days. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, now look at that. The word dispensation in the Greek is the word eokonomia, which, from which we get the word economy. So if you think about it, he's saying that in the, in the economy of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And that little phrase, gather together, that means the gathering together of his people, the church. He says, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And take note of verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated, notice, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Folks, what we're studying tonight, including the history, the present, the prophecy, the future, it is in God, it is in his will, it is for him to accomplish, it is for him to complete, and because he is God, he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, and that means he is going to accomplish everything that he has set out to accomplish. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest or the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Uh, praise the Lord. Amen to that, because that just says, listen, when Jesus comes, you'll be with him if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So that is our, that is our joy, that is our crown, that is our encouragement to get ourselves right with the Lord. And as we started in Titus, to live godly in this present age, then let's continue to do that until Jesus comes. Amen? All right, let's stand and let's go to the Lord in prayer so we can close our service tonight. And I appreciate your patience in the history of the Iranians there. So I think it's, it was interesting to tie that in to, to the mindset. You see, the mindset of what we see happening today, the hatred toward the Jews, the hatred toward Israel, but now includes something else, the hatred toward the cross and the hatred toward Christians.
And uh, it's sad to see how much that is being actually uh, promulgated in our own country today. Pray for two things. Pray, first of all, for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And secondly, pray for this nation. Pray for our nation. There has been no other nation on the face of this earth that has come alongside God's people like the, like the United States. And, and, and now we see what the world thinks is, 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 uh, is due us. But you know what? God has better things. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. And help us to understand this, not only for this evening, but Lord, for every evening, every day, every moment that we live, that we would find ourselves, Lord God, realizing how soon Jesus' return is and how much we want to be there and ready when he comes. Lord, I pray, Father, that you will strengthen our minds and our hearts to understand and receive these things so that with it all we can give glory and honor to you and, and, and just be encouraged by your presence, be encouraged by your love and your mercy and your grace. And Father, I pray, Father, that you will use us greatly and mightily in this, in this time and in these last days to bring others to you because, Lord, salvation is still available. It is still there for those who would come. So, Lord, help us in bringing others to you. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.